It's so nice to see you. Um, the question you're probably going to be asking yourself today is not, uh, do I like this talk, but can I take seriously a guy that wears shorts on stage? So if you're asking that, I feel like when it comes towards winter, I just I become a rebel and I just don't want to give up summer. So I'm wearing shorts today. Look at those puppies. All right. Hey, I'm really stoked to be bringing you a series on John. And can I just say, whoever did this, isn't that beautiful? I want that as my screensaver. That is, that is awesome. Um, John's Gospel is, uh, I, I don't know if you're allowed a favorite book in the Bible, but John's Gospel would probably be one of my favorite books in the Bible. And the reason for that is that John is both uh, a theological and a literary genius. John is an absolute genius in the way that he constructs his, um, his gospel account of Jesus. But I guess straight off the bat, you're probably wondering why are there four gospels and not just one, right? Why are there four gospels and not just one? And that's actually a pretty simple answer. Imagine if the, I wanted to find something out uh, about you, and I only asked one of your friends. Chances are that I'm pretty sure that you probably think you're deeper and more complex than just one person could sum up your life. That's exactly what the Gospels are about. There's four Gospels because they portray Jesus in unique but complementary ways. So if you've ever been wondering, what's with the four Gospels? What's the big deal? That's the reason why. And John is unique in those four Gospels because what we get is these synoptic Gospels, these first three books of the Bible which comes from the Greek synoptikos, which kind of sounds like a transformer. So that's kind of cool. What synoptis means that, it just means that it can be grouped together. The first three books of the Bible just talk about, they talk about Jesus in the same kind of pattern, and they use the same kind of stories. And in fact, they use the same kind of language, but they portray it in, in three different ways. What makes John unique, though, is that where the other three Gospels start with Jesus at his birth, and then they kind of work their way through until his death and resurrection, John starts with creation itself. He places the work of Jesus in the widest possible context that you can imagine. Creation. Creation itself. And John's conclusion is this, this. He wants to bring us to this one mind-blowing conclusion that Jesus is none other, nothing less than the creator of this universe come into the world on a rescue mission to redeem all of creation. That's mind-blowing. That's such an Anglican response, and I appreciate that. Thank you. That's, that's really good. I expected it. That's okay. I'm going to move on. But let that sink in, okay? And it's no coincidence then that John, he is so concerned. Are you guys thinking about my legs? He is so concerned with the universe. He's so concerned with what kind of universe do we live in? What kind of universe do we live in? What is this world about? That is John's question. You know what? Do we live in an inherently evil universe? I think if we've got to be 
adults. We're all adults in this room, right? Surely at some point that's occurred to us. Do we live in an inherently evil, meaningless universe? Friedrich Nietzsche, who was a, a German philosopher, famously said, God, through one of his pseudonyms, God is dead. Meaning that underneath it all, the world has no meaning. There is no meaning to this universe. There is no meaning to this world, and therefore there's no meaning to our lives. That's cherry, eh? Or, or does this world have inherent meaning? Is it meaningful? Is it like what Martin Luther King Jr. says, that the moral arc of the universe bends, but it bends towards justice? meaning that the world has ultimate meaning. Okay, so you're probably thinking that sounds quite abstract. Where does this hit the road? Where does it hit our lives? And I think the way to, where to start this is a century ago. A century ago, a sermon was preached at Oxford University Chapel. And the reason that it's relevant to us today is because it was preached at a time when the world suddenly looked completely meaningless. Now, it was preached to a group of um, undergrad students who had just started their study. So these were students who were, they were just about to take the world, you know, the world for themselves. The future was set out before them. And the sermon was preached by a fairly a fairly well-known, uh, a fairly well-known preacher. He went on to write a few good children's books. You might have heard of him. His name was yeah, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, a hundred years ago, preached this sermon, and I think it's relevant for us today, because it's preached at a time when the world just seems like it is, well, on a path to destruction. Lewis's response, what Lewis has to say to those students, I think is meaningful for us. And I think it is a John's gospel response. So these students, these students didn't even know if they would be conscripted into the army. They didn't know if they would live to see their degrees through to the end. The world felt like it would end tomorrow. Does it sound kind of familiar? In the face of an uncertain future, their lives suddenly felt insignificant. You know what? I think we are living in a time where we have uh, post-COVID numbness. We are living in an age where it feels so disorientating, right? We're disorientated. Who here is tired? Yeah, I think we're all a little bit tired. I think we're all a little bit disorientated. And we're living, I feel like we're living in, a, in the fog of the present. Do you know what I mean? You know when you're in that fog and you're like, I have no idea where this world is leading. I have no idea what the future will be. How do you live in uncertain times? That's the question I want to ask today. How do you live in uncertain times. And I think to answer that, we need to go back to John. 
You see, in the ancient world, the ancient worldview was that the world was meaningless. That is the typical ancient worldview. In fact, one of the greatest threats to early Christianity was a movement called Gnosticism. Who's heard of Gnosticism? Yeah. Okay, good. Oh, okay, I better be on point here. <laughs> Stink. Okay, um, one of the great movements of Gnosticism, was it one of, the, one of the leaders of Gnosticism was a guy called Marcion, right? And his belief was that the world was inherently evil. Now, Marcion was uh, popular around the time that John is starting, was writing his gospel. Gnosticism was happening at that time. And Marcion's argument is this. Now, are you ready? Here's something quite depressing. Are you ready for this? Look at how bad the world is. This is Marcion's argument. Look at how bad the world is. Think about all the pain in this world. Think about how corrupt this world is. Well, then that must lead surely to this conclusion, that the world is made by an evil God. That's Marcion's argument. And into that worldview, John writes his gospel. Into that worldview, John writes his gospel. Now, this is what the Marcians felt. Marcionites, they were followers of, of Marcion and the Gnostic kind of understanding. And when they stood on the beach at night and they looked up at the stars, all they could feel was the crushing weight of human insignificance. What a cherry date, eh? What a cherry date. If Marcion's on your left and John's on your right, and Marcin has just told you that you are insignificant, that your life has no meaning. Then you hear John. And this is what John is saying. This is the story John comes out of. When I look at the heavens, the work of your hands, Lord. You know how intimate that is? The work of your hands. What are humans that you care for them? That is the story that John writes his gospel out of. That's Psalm 8, by the way. John's God is intimately caring for his creation. He cares for each one of us. That is John's gospel. Why can he make that claim? Because... You might have noticed that when we read John, that John rewrites the story of creation itself. He rewrites the story of creation as the story of Jesus. Have you noticed that what we just read here, that we hear these same words in Genesis, in the beginning, in the beginning. Those are the words that you hear in the first the chapter, the first line of Genesis. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, at the creation of the universe. And all things that were made were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, 
and his life is the light of all people. Pretty good. That is a rewriting of the creation story. In John, God does not stand back from creation. He doesn't stand back from this world. He doesn't stand at a distance. He enters into it. Through the word, he comes into creation and takes it on in flesh and blood. And because God himself takes on the world, where is the world heading? Not towards destruction, but towards life. God invests himself in our world to bring it to life. Right from the start to the end, John is concerned with creation and new creation. God is making all things new. You know, in John, you get that beautiful verse that we all know so well because we see it at uh, softball matches, well, if you're looking at the States, or uh, rugby matches. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God loves this world. And John tells us that Jesus is like a plan. He's like a pattern. He's like the blueprint of reality. If you want to know what life is like, really like, then only, you only need to look at how Jesus lived. How does Jesus come into the world? He comes into the world eating and drinking. He comes into the world fully embodying our existence and the material things of this world. So, John is not a, either, John is not an optimist or a pessimist. The optimist looks at the world and thinks, everything's okay. Everything is heading towards goodness. That's okay. Everything's fine. The optimist looks at the world and only sees good. And the pessimist looks at the world and sees nothing but evil. John is neither an optimist nor a pessimist. He's something more profound. He realizes that the world is bent, but that it bends towards life. The world is bending towards life. So if we come back to Lewis's account, how do we live in uncertain times? This is what Lewis says. Now think of this. These are students that are starting to study Anglo-Saxon poetry. In the middle of a wartime, Anglo-Saxon poetry, they're starting to study biology, they're starting to study mathematics, they're starting to study history, all of which seems, you know, not particularly relevant when the world is going to hell in a handbasket, right? The world is crumbling, and these students are just starting to study things that don't look particularly relevant. This is what Lewis says. He said, because the world bends towards life, because the world is bending towards justice, everything that we do, the things that we do, the meaningless things that we do every day, seemingly getting the kids out the door, making their lunches, working in our offices, 
planting a garden, these things can be used by God as the redemptive act of the world. These small things, seemingly insignificant in the face of a world that is going down, but because the world bends towards life, everything that we do is caught up in that redemptive plan. That's what John is about, creation to new creation. And Lewis's response actually echoes an early church father, St. Irenaeus. You guys probably know this really well. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. That is what Lewis is saying to these students. If the world is inherently good, then at any moment it is primed to spring forth in life. At any moment. I think of those little seeds. Do you know the countdown seeds that you guys are probably collecting if you have kids? And you look at it and you open up those packets and the, the dirt in there is like dry as anything. And the seeds in there are like these little dead ball, black balls that are wrapped in paper. But as soon as you pour life on those, as soon as you pour water on them, life springs forth. The world is in the same kind of thing. If we make the analogy, the world looks like it's going downhill. But actually, God is pouring his life, his light, his, his water of life on these things. And they are springing forth. Life is primed to spring forth at any moment. It is inherently good. You know, the German Protestant uh, reformer Martin Luther was asked, if the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do? Why don't I ask you that? If the world was going to end tomorrow, what would you do? Do you know what Martin Luther said? I would plant a tree. I would plant a tree. That's a John's gospel way of thinking about life. And what Luther meant was, I would go on investing in this world. In this good world. Because even if there is a chance that the world is going to end tomorrow, I know that Jesus is committed to this world, taking this world on, and life could spring forth at any moment. Plant a tree. How should we live in uncertain times? How do we live in uncertain times? Live! <laughs> live! Why? Because God is committed to this world, that the ark of the world bends, it is bent, the world is broken, but it bends towards justice. It bends towards life. How do you live in uncertain times? Plant a tree, begin a new project, start a business, design something beautiful, make new friends. Invest in your kids. Invest in yourself. Fall in love. 
live. Why? Because Jesus is with you. Live. Why don't we stand? Let me pray, and then Newt's going to come up, and we're going to have communion. Heavenly Father, God of the universe, I pray that you take every person here. Lord, no matter what their life is, is it arid? Is there no water in it at the moment? Is that that how it feels? You are the God of the universe. You are the God of creation, of new creation. Father, I pray that you would pour your spirit that living water that gushes out, that you would pour your spirit on every situation that everyone here is currently in, that you know it intimately. Who are you, Lord? You are the one who cares for each one of us. Lord, pour your spirit out, the spirit of life onto these lives And may they flourish. May they be part of your redemption plan. May other people see it and say, that is beautiful. Why are you growing like that? And that they would know that the creation of this universe is good. And that it bends towards life. Amen.